Hey everyone, you're listening to Can You Hear Us Now? Inclusivity in the Media, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of those in marginalized communities who are frequently overlooked in the mainstream media. Each week we discuss new topics in order to promote representation of those who are recurrently silenced or ignored. Our program aims to bring awareness to these issues in order to stimulate inclusivity in the media. Let's get into it. Hello, my name is Kevin Gomez-Gonzalez, and today I'm accompanied by my colleagues Julia Rafferty and Henry Vivar Gomez, as we'll be taking a look at what public relations can tell us about how activist organizations use social media to advance their messaging and how they navigate the representation in news media. Scrolling through your social media timeline or explorer feed for you page, you're bound to come across some posts regarding a variety of activist movements from a range of organizations. And it makes sense because social media is an increasingly vital part of public messaging, especially for young people. And in fact, findings from a 2020 study by the Pew Research Center on activism on social media indicate that a growing share of young people are using social media for getting involved with political or social issues that are important to them and are using the same venue to express their own political opinions. Another Pew study from last year found that majority of Americans from both sides of the aisle agree that social media is effective in raising public awareness about social issues, creating sustainable movements, influence politicians and policy, and changes people's mind about the social issues that we face. However, this does not come without its caveats. 76% of respondents to the same 2020 study said that social media can make people think they're making a difference when they really aren't. So-called slacktivism, where easily shareable infographics and sharply edited explainers take the place of traditional grassroots movement building, is an often cited criticism on social media activism. The concern being that it does not extend beyond the online space and into real-world mobilization. Naturally, activists have had to address these messaging to their political engaged audience and consider their strategies for how to address these concerns and criticism. To better understand how activists work to bridge that gap, let's take a look at a case study here at home. The group Vaccinate UNC Now, which has made headlines for their campaigns to implement a vaccine mandate at the university. Julia, could you share a little bit about how you came to learn about the group and what their work looks like? So when the fall 2021 semester started approaching back in August, a lot of students all around the country were wondering if their school was going to mandate COVID-19 vaccinations. And here at UNC, a lot of students were talking on social media, particularly Instagram and Twitter, about how many members of our UNC community were vaccinated, were going to be vaccinated by the start of classes, and if we were just going to have a repeat of last fall where things went pretty horribly and we were back in remote classes within days. So right before school started, I got a follow request from an Instagram account called Vaccinate UNC Now, and the bio read, students want a vaccine mandate for Carolina. We're here to make one happen. And then there was a petition linked in the bio. So I was really excited when I saw the account and I saw it had hundreds of followers, lots of mutuals, um, but I was also pretty fascinated with how the account came to be and who was behind it. Um, and then the account went on to post throughout the first weeks of the semester and they planned a pretty well attended rally here at the center of campus. Henry got to speak with one of the student organizers involved with Vaccinate UNC Now, um, Luke and Alex, the co-founders, and asked them a few questions about how they employ social media in their campaign. So let's hear what they had to say. As an organization, do you believe that modern activism requires 
social media presence? So um, this is actually a very interesting question because I'm personally someone who has an extreme disdain for social media. Like I actively dislike it and I try to avoid it at all costs. But when it came time to like actually get people involved in the organization, um, we thought about different options to get people interested, but like we realized that Instagram was probably the best way to contact the most people at once. And so even though I really dislike it, you know, I hate Zuckerberg and, and all that, like it really was an effective tool at building a, a large community very quickly. A hundred percent of our organization was through social media. Like we, um, that was how we pushed out all our announcements and everything. That's how we set up the date for the protest. That's how we told people what to expect and what to bring. One thing I think I didn't really understand about activism was just how much work it is. It really is, it really is a pretty significant effort on part of the activists. And I think part of this comes from the fact that I'd always been told that like, you know, online activism is, is pretty lazy and not difficult. But if you actually intend to organize a protest or organize an event, there is a lot of planning that goes into it that I, I really did not fully understand how complex it can be. I mean, in terms of picking the right time, picking the location, picking the messaging, making sure you're not violating any rules, you can get a lot of um, bad press for like slacktivism. Like, uh, you know, if people say, oh, you guys just post stuff, you don't actually do things which is why we tried to keep our overall like um messaging pretty sparse like we wanted it to be like you know we do like three or four posts and then there's an actual event what are your thoughts about criticism against slacktivism or activism that's accused of not going beyond social media platforms i think the difference is that you have to be an account that like actually organizes a protest like there's a lot of like educational and informational sort of social media accounts and those are like well-intended, but I mean, I do think if you're not organizing or funding or doing something, then you know, you're kind of just taking up space on social media and not really doing much with it. So I think that's the difference. If you actually organize an event or if you raise funding somehow, then that's, that's what makes you a, an agent of change. I think that's really compelling, uh, Julie. What, I was curious to see your thoughts on seeing how this same kind of sentiment that was seen in the studies was reflected in the organizers themselves. You know, Having these concerns about, what if we're doing all this activity on social media, but our followers aren't taking the extra step to follow us onto the ground when we actually do some kind of action? Yeah, it's definitely an interesting point that they brought up slacktivism and how that was a concern of theirs when they were creating the account and wondering how students were going to react to it. Um, it definitely shows that for you know young activists, they're aware of the power of social media, but also that it could lead to criticisms and potentially be a detriment to their movement. So um, understanding how they navigated that and had to right when they've created the account, have that at um, the forefront of their development of the idea is really interesting. Yes, it is absolutely notable that this is a consideration that they had in mind as an organization, that there was the potential to not move past this kind of slacktivism uh, when deciding their organization strategy. There is that 2020 paper by researchers Dean Freelon, Alice Marwick, and Daniel Kreese 
from UNC Chapel Hill, which examined this issue. The paper cited research that indicated that social media activism is a complement for offline engagement, and sharing information on social media predicted activities such as attending meetings, contacting public officials, and donating funds to campaigns. So Vaccinate UNC Now could be an example of an organization that was able to move past that kind of slacktivism and see and achieve that offline engagement that they were looking for. Yeah, I think they definitely get something right by acknowledging that it's a combination of both and that slacktivism is when there's only an emphasis on kind of shallow social media interactions. But when you can use social media, like you said, as a complement to, you know, larger actions and planning a rally as they did and reaching out to, to leadership at the university, all of that hand in hand creates change. But it is interesting that they say they acknowledge that slacktivism alone is definitely not enough. Are you satisfied with how the news media covers activism organization? And what ways do you believe this coverage could be improved? I mean, I think the thing that most people don't fully comprehend about news organizations is that they really are seeking to find the conflict in the story. And this was something I, I witnessed firsthand at our protest. When like CBS 17 came up to us, uh, they interviewed two students and then they just sort of sat around and waited and then when we marched up to the front steps, they were foaming every second. And then when we uh, tried to get into the building, but it was locked, you know, they 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 sort of spun it into like uh, they made it sound a lot more like a lot more divisive. Like Chapel Hill locked locked them out of the administration building and like refused to hear them or like whatever. So. News organizations definitely try to make anything into like a conflict because one of the nuances that I wanted our organization to do is that we were pro like improving UNC's COVID policies, but we weren't necessarily anti UNC because it was, it would have been very easy for us to be like, oh, we hate the administration. We hate this, but like, I really wanted us to walk that line of there's a better path. I'm like, people are making mistakes, but they're not evil for it. So I did find that the news organizations sort of made us a little, sound a little angrier than we actually were. I think news organizations need to learn to fight against the urge to make everything so divisive, partly because like we're witnessing extreme polarization in America and it's difficult for them, and I understand this, because the more divisive your article, the more clicks you get and the more money you make. So I feel like there's, there's a real struggle right now to make news organizations that aren't seeking to you know, promote inflammatory rhetoric right now. So I think one of the most interesting things about what Alex and Luke were just talking about is that it really enforces um, the power of social media and that when they have their own account and they have access to an audience on social media, they have control over the narrative. They have control over how people perceive them. They get to create their own um, infographics or, you know, reply to comments. And that kind of power is specific to social media and something you don't get when you're, you know, hosting a rally and just hoping that local news shows up to cover it and you get publicity from it. You get to create your own publicity. Um, and I think that is for young people really important so that their movements aren't um, impacted by misunderstandings or, or media just not getting it right. 
I think running your own accounts and stuff gives you a lot more control over your messaging. And I think the news can really twist your message in a way that you don't like. So I, I actually think that they, you know, if you're going to run, if you're going to run a movement that pushes for a change, you need a central source of information. So that way you don't end up with internal hypocrisy or that, you know, it's clear what your message is. It's important to have those central messages. If you're trying to push through, for, push for change through a system that's already in place, because like a system that's already in place has likely has the power that you don't as an activist group, you're, you're trying to uh, gather people, of course, to like make change in the system. But if, if you don't have like clear and concise control over your message, then you have no ability to push for any sort of message. Yeah, Julie, like you mentioned, I think the key words there really are having that central control of the, of the message, having the ability to determine how are we going to be presenting our information? How are we going to be communicating to our followers and addressing our grievances to those who have that influence we're looking to appeal to? I see that it's a really interesting point on controlling the narrative. And of course, that's a very important thing when it comes to the social movement, you know, but this also raises a big concern. I mean, even when we see big activism groups, celebrities, even corporations, we see that there is more of a control um, or regulations put on their social media. And so much like, you know, celebrities where we see them having a little meltdown online or even um, tweeting things that, not realizing that it's not necessarily in support, but more offensive to the cause. I wonder, are these going to be the same issues that these that they're going to have to face that they just haven't thought of, you know, activism group going off social media runs even more risk of mis-messaging certain things. And as it's re I'm really interested in seeing how this will play out in the future. Will we all get better understanding of how to use social media for specific things like activism, or are we just going to kind of use it like our everyday use and not really have a great understanding on, on the messaging aspect of it? On that same point about having a clear and concise message, the founders of UNC Vax now, they point to other organizations such as March for Our Lives and Black Lives Matter as examples of movements that have very clear and concise messaging. Social media presence by these organizations is quite popular. They have um, a, quite a bit of engagement on, on their social media uh, messaging. And should bring this up as, as an example of what do successful organizations look like? What do their strategies look like? And for that, let's now go to our conversation with uh, Professor Julia Dixon to see what she might be able to tell us about how an organization can design their messaging to be that kind of optimum, clear, concise, and central. You know, our conversation with Vax UNC Now gave a very, very personal and insightful view of how activism interacts with media of various levels. Our next interviewee is a queen, an icon, and a Hall of Fame publicist. And she is the moment. Come on now. That's right. We're talking to Professor Jules Dixon about how activism is represented in media. Let's hear what Professor Dixon, the icon, has to say. In your professional opinion, does modern-day activism require a social media presence? Absolutely, and you probably knew that how I was going to answer that question, Henry. I have seen, especially in the past five to seven years in the public relations arena and in our field of media and new media, 
social media is more important than ever. I mean, for, for Gen Z and for millennials, it's the primary way that they get their information. When you don't have time to click on the broadcast news or you're still out and about at six o'clock when the big newscast happen on the, you know, on uh, network stations and you're not in your car for drive time, right? For to hear, uh, to hear the disc jockeys and the news on the, on the radios. I believe, I tell my students, it's the power of the scroll. I mean, it's just everybody scrolling on their phones. So if any organization does not have an organized, um, robust, very strategic uh, social response, you know, social um, media strategy, it's hard to be successful. What does an impactful social media presence look like for a grassroots activist organization? I think, and I love the fact that the question has the grassroots element in it. To me, my opinion, um, a successful social media presence looks like uh, testimonies. Um, I'm big on, you know, this on um, guerrilla marketing and guerrilla PR, and that's kind of like woman, man on the street, um, you know, hearing each other's point of view. I love the live element of social media when you have something going on and you just want to bring in your viewership into the moment because everybody maybe can't physically be there. I think um, impactful social media presence looks like live streaming, um, various different views, you know, right, left, in the middle, completely fair, balanced views are articulated. And I just believe, you know, when I think of grassroots, I think of like nitty gritty, like scrappy, what really matters in the community and being where the people are. So that's my, my uh, Professor Dixon, um, you know, definition of grassroots activism. And you see it more and more, and you especially see it again among millennials and Gen Z. They have, a, they, they feel the responsibility um, to, in a, in a grassroots way, activate things that matter to them. What does a student-led uh, movement like Vaccinate UNC Now, which is exclusively um, uses social media to raise awareness for their cause and events, say about the power of students' activism and social media? It says, to circle back, to piggyback on my question number two, it says that they realize that the only way, I shouldn't say only, but the most prominent way to break through and get their messages across is power of the phone, the power of the scroll. They realize they have, and rightfully so, a lot of control based on what people see in their social media feed. That is the reason you saw such an uptick in TikTok. Um, you know, you've heard me talk about it last year, especially during the pandemic. TikTok's numbers were through the roof. A lot of people didn't even know what a TikTok was before we all were shut down at home, right? So I think people realized that, you know, social media from a proactive perspective, from a reactionary perspective, from a crisis uh, perspective, you can't, you can't be a successful brand, organization, CEO, sports star, celebrity star. In my humble opinion and professional opinion, and I, you know, Henry, I've been a publicist for well over 30 years. Um, you cannot these days do it right without a robust and strategic social media presence. So it says a lot on this question number three, um, the, a group such as Vaccinate UNC now, they realize the importance of social media. And they realized if there's one thing they absolutely had to have in order to activate their movement and activate the students, it was that element. Oddly enough, like when we did interview them, they actually mentioned how powerful and how much they didn't realize social media could play into a role because the, wow. founder, the founder actually hated social media. He didn't want Facebook. He didn't want Instagram. He didn't want any of that. 
until you know they're like until the rest of his team members were like we need social media and then somehow they they all made the decision to be exclusively just social media wow. and of course i've like have like you know real world events and like information out but like everything like you know and when we interviewed him he shared the process of like how he went from someone who was like no social media to like you know social media is really useful and really powerful yeah it is incredibly powerful the co-founders of vaccinate unc now said that the so-called slacktivism was something their organization was specifically trying to avoid how can organizations adapt their social media strategy to avoid promoting slacktivism i think they can adapt it to avoid just kind of the way I, again i will say laissez-faire you know, laissez-faire PR, social media um, action is to just make sure their topics are incredibly relevant, right? That they are talking about something that matters, especially as, as you know, this Gen Z version of what's on our campus, that their topics, their interviews, and um, just everything that matters to that group falls you just, it's, I think of it tunnel vision, 18, most people on campus are 18 to 21, 22 years old. What matters in that age range and making sure that the content of the social media is something that resonates with them, right? Because otherwise, if it doesn't resonate pretty deeply, then it's gonna be one of those things where it's just liked on Instagram. I'll use that because I happen to know the college students really aren't on Facebook unless they have to be for a class project. It's not their jam, right? It's like, <laughs> so, I mean, I also know that the vehicles that are most prevalent to college students are Instagram. And I know because um, a lot of my students, once they graduate, will request to follow me. And, you know, I'm like, that's where they live. They live in that space of TikTok and Instagram. And a little bit, I think they're kind of Snapchat out. I think that's more of a, a high school, younger kind of uh, demographic. I just don't find a lot of my students snapping, um, Snapchatting. But Instagram, when you think about it and you break it down, that is the power of a picture. I get it because I consider myself like an amateur photographer, but like it's the power of a picture. When I was doing a little background and research to get ready for this chat with you, what stopped me when I was looking at various different articles is the picture of not, not five, not 10, not 15, but three of the students in Vaccinate US, UNC Now with their three signs in front of South Building kind of like we don't care if it's just the three of us we're making a stance and this is really important to us and we're right here in the in the epicenter of our action here and so in in south building and i kind of smiled and i'm like you just um you got to admire their 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 good their chutzpah you got to admire their you know their profound um love of what they're doing and so the way to stop or you know uh not necessarily stop, but at least you know, like dising, you know, like not encourage slacktivism, is to have relevant topics that really matter. You know, people these days, you know, they're they're doing what they do, and they're worried about the ten things that they have to do. I, I guarantee you have fifty things to do after you end the Zoom call with me. I know I do too, right? But I teach my students this little mantra that I learned in management early in my career: "Be here now." I am here with you, Henry Gomez in this moment at 11.53, concentrating on what's on my screen and what is important to me, which is doing this, this interview with you and sharing some of my points of view. So I think back to the conciseness and the clarity and, and the central way of messaging that made Black Lives Matter so powerful. So often it came back to two or three messages. Our lives matter, Black Lives Matter, stop the hate. 
right? So I think sometimes we can overcomplicate messages when it really comes back to one or two or three key, key elements. The co-founders of Vaccinate UNC Now expressed some frustrations over the coverage of their organization in the news media because they emphasized the conflict in the situation. How can activist organizations use social media to counteract this kind of misrepresentation? Well, in this case, the, the social media vehicle that comes back to me um, and is loud and clear to me, and I just talked to a class about this a couple of days ago, is when you look at so many vehicles, right, Snapchat, LinkedIn, et cetera, the two, um, and I'm not sure if they were on these two, but the two social media vehicles that help correct the wrongs and help correct the misstatements and help even clarify and, and give a deeper understanding, in my opinion, are Twitter and LinkedIn. You just have more room and more space to write. And news media, you might remember this when I talked to Chris about how to deal with the media, the news media, especially in reduced newsrooms and, and the number of writers have been reduced and the number of, of you know just news teams and photographers have been reduced. They're relying on, especially Instagram and Twitter more than ever to get clarification for their news stories, the DM feature allows a editor, producer, anchor, photog to reach out to the PR people or the PR person and a spokesperson and say, I need a little more clarification on this, this, and this. So I think to specifically answer the question, how can an activist organization use social media to counteract this kind of representation? It's the power of the DM, right? Use direct messaging. Um, in Twitter's case, you know, the retweet, um, the response tweet, all of that's incredibly powerful. So I do believe, you know, there is um, there is a you know um, a rhythm to that crazy madness of social media that people once they figure it out. I was talking in a class the other day. We were talking about how in airline situations, which it's been like so much during the pandemic, right? Often you can reach the powers that be in the in the booking you know in the booking department or the crisis department via Twitter quicker than you can get through to a one eight hundred number. So that is because they have intelligent, strategic, robust social media teams because they realize if something gets blown out of like, just own out of the water in the social media sphere, it's hard to pull it back once it's out there. And you guys know that. So it takes crisis to a whole nother level when it hits social media. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed the conversations as much as we did and got to learn a little bit more about how social media is impacting today's activism. We want to take the time to thank Professor Dixon and Luke and Alex from Vax UNC Now for being our special guests today. This episode of the Can You Hear Us Now podcast was produced as part of the class project for Mijo 441, Diversity and Communication, at the Husband School of Journalism and Media at UNC Chapel Hill. This episode was produced by Julia Rafferty, Kevin Gomez-Gonzalez, and Henry Vivier Gomez, and it was recorded on December 1st, 2021. Thanks for listening to the Can You Hear Us Now Inclusivity in the Media podcast. We hope we were able to expand your mind and shed some light on this week's topic regarding depictions of activism in the media. As always, we encourage you to take a closer look at the media you consume and don't be afraid to advocate for those who might not have a voice. Make sure to tune in next time when we discuss the portrayal of women in media.
You can also head over to our website at CanYouHearUsNowPodcast.com to check out more information and resources relating to our episodes. Be sure to leave a like on this episode and subscribe to our program. See you next time. Thank you.